Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Come and speak to us this morning, Lord. I pray that you soften our hearts, Lord, to be a, a soil that can receive the seeds that you're going to sow this morning. Holy Spirit, anything that I say that's not of you, make it fall away and come to nothing. But the things that you want to establish here this morning, Lord, may it be rooted in our hearts. May it be set ablaze and begin to grow and change our walk to see you more, Jesus, to understand you more, Jesus, to understand the cross and the power of your scriptures more. May you reveal yourself to us this morning. In your beautiful name, Lord, we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible, Acts 8, 26, verse 40 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week I spoke about Simon the Magician and the power that, that, he, um, that he was claiming to be operating under. I spoke about how... Sorry, I'm just going to move forward. I feel a mile away. Um, we spoke about the power that that Simon uh, said that he was operating under and, and how he was a magician and there were was, there was signs and wonders and things happening not of God, but they were happening in the city. And we, we, we read that, that Philip went in and he, he opened up the city. He opened up who God was. He expressed himself and he expressed the power of Jesus and what Jesus was doing and who he was. And he used the move of the Holy Spirit. He used the power of the Holy Spirit to express that what Simon, uh, sorry, what yeah, what Simon the magician was operating in was not of God. And in that, Simon came to faith. So we, we learned that there was this counterfeit trying to trade and that we cannot buy the power of God, but it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And this morning, from Acts 26, verse 40, we continue to read of Philip and what Philip is doing. And this is probably one of my favorite passages when it comes to new believers coming to Christ. I love this verse because I think that it really unpacks the power of God. There's so much in this. And I'm only going to take one sermon on this and just unpack a little bit of, of what's taking place. But we're reading from verse 26, Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, sorry, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah to the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture, scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe, who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. 
But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I love this passage of scripture. There is so much insanity in this that just makes me so excited. When I when I used to get into discussions, which I've decided I'm no longer doing, with uh, people who don't believe in the power of God, I love going to this verse because Philip baptizes the eunuch and then he disappears. And I had slides, but I forgot to send them, so I don't have slides. But I, I mapped it out on Google Maps. It's 40 kilometers that he shoots over to, 40 kilometers, from the place he's in to the place that he's going. And my favorite thing about this verse is that that's not even the most exciting part. That's like the little bit on the end, like, oh, yeah, he disappeared and he went somewhere else. But there's so much more in it. And I think, man, how God, you were so incredible that you tell a story and what blows my mind is that he was essentially teleported and that's just like, the oh, yeah, that happened. I love when you hear people speak who have seen incredible things of God and they go, oh, yeah, that guy was raised from the dead. Yeah, but you should understand who Jesus is. It's so incredible. I love that the massive things become so small in who Christ is. And that's what we see in this story. The first thing I think we hear in in this is, is the obedience of Philip because the Spirit says to him, Rise and go toward the south road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, the trip from Jerusalem to Gaza is about 75 to 80 kilometers as the crow flies straight. 75 to 80 kilometers. So, Philip, he's asleep. He wakes up. God says, Go toward Gaza. I'll tell you where to go when you get there. Without question, Philip decides, Okay, I'll go. He gets up and he starts to walk. He has no idea what he's walking into. None. He's just come out of a phenomenal time in Samaria where he's seen God move, he's seen the power of God. He's gone back. He's thought, we've done three or four days straight in Samaria. I'm going to get to have a rest. Spirit says, go. When? Now. Go. To what, Lord? Just go. I'll tell you. So he packs his things and he goes toward the road. And I think it's so incredible, his his obedience, because, and and I've preached this before, that God, that Jesus reveals that he's a lantern unto our feet. We only see the step that's in front of us. And it's not until we take that step that the lantern moves a little bit further. And then when we take the next step, the lantern moves a little bit further. God reveals the pattern and plan of our life step by step by step by step. But if we don't take that first step, we can't actually find out what the next step is. God was not going to tell Philip what he was going into until what? Until he went. So he starts walking along and he goes, right, God, I'm, I'm on the journey. And God says, right there, that man, the Ethiopian eunuch. But it continues even more than that because the Ethiopian eunuch, as we read, is the, the, the eunuch to the queen, Cadence. And he was the one who was to look after the treasures and the riches of the, the queen. So his chariot would have been schmancy. His chariot would not have been a, it would have been a really nice, covered in gold, beautiful looking chariot. Why? Because he was in another city of which the queen would have wanted to show off her riches to explain, this is who I am. So Philip, now walking, a man of no valor, of no importance at all, knows, go to this place. He sees this phenomenal chariot and God says, go and speak to the man inside. I love that we don't see Philip question God at all. Sure. I'll go. 
you said, go, Lord, I'll go. And I think that challenges us as believers because we want to see the scroll and we want to know from start to finish before we'll set off on our journey. God, tell me where I'm going. Tell me how I'm going to have enough supplies. Tell me who I'm going to meet and tell me what it's going to look like before I go. But God doesn't work like that. God wants to see your faithfulness in your first step. And he says, when you get there, I'll give you the next part. But in the Western world, we're so, who, when they put into Google Maps, does a quick little like out view to go, oh yeah, I'm going roughly down there and I know where I'm going and then we go to the little one by one direction. Because the one by one direction scares me. I get a little bit nervous like, do they know where we're going? It's a GPS satellite, but I'm like, oh, am I going to get lost? I like to zoom out to see where I'm going. But God doesn't operate like that. God says, trust me in that first step. And I promise I'll be there for the second, the third, and the fourth, and the 10,000 when he gets there. Philip goes, and he's so incredibly obedient toward God. The next thing we see is that the eunuch, the eunuch was inside the chariot, and he was already starting to, to understand and read the things, sorry, he was already starting to read the things of God, but he was confused. If you're not sure there, that verse that that is highlighted is Isaiah 53. He's reading about Jesus, prophesied by the early prophets. He's reading about a man and a time that was to come. And the eunuch begins to say, who is this that he's reading of? What an incredible place for Philip to go. We've just seen all of this come to pass. Let me tell you about my Lord. Let me tell you about what we've just seen back in Jerusalem. I was just there with he who he's speaking of in this verse. During the week, go and read Isaiah 53. I've got it, but I'm not going to read it because I want to keep moving because I want to get to the, the thing that God's really highlighting to me in this, in this whole verse. But how incredible that, that Philip is right there in the midst of this, this Ethiopian eunuch who would come, had come from another, another nation that would have had another religion, another understanding, and yet he was, he was bamboozled by the worship of the Jews, by this free, empowering worship that they were sitting in, that he has managed somehow to get his hands on, on the Scriptures, and he's saying, I want to know what this is. There was a hunger from the eunuch to know more, and God provided the more. See, when we begin to hunger God, I said this last week, when we begin to hunger God and say, Lord, I want to know more of you, I want to see more, he brings it to us. But we have to begin to be in that position where we say, God, I want more. How am I to know this? There's verses that I'm wrestling with at the moment, and I'm going, God, I don't understand this. Show me. What? How can we, how can we have this in our scriptures? How can we have this in the word that's supposed to bring us life? I don't understand. In that hunger, God reveals answers. He comes and he answers as we begin to bash on the door and say, Jesus, who is it that you are? What are you talking about? I want to know more. In salvation and in life, Jesus is enough. When we look to him and express who he is, we watch how people's lives change under the authentic power of Jesus. All through Acts that I've been teaching on the last however long, we have seen Jesus, 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 Jesus. Everything the disciples did, they pointed back to Christ. Philip doesn't change his method here. He doesn't change what it is. He actually gets in the chariot and he says, the person you're reading about, let me tell you who he is. 
We don't see Philip begin to break down the religion that the eunuch had come out of. We don't see him argue and, and, and protest to say, your, your religion's not right, your way of life is not right. We just see him say, it's Jesus, let me show you who he is. And he begins to unpack who Jesus is. Our walk as Christians is to unpack and explain who Christ is. That's what Philip was doing with the Ethiopian eunuch. To the absolute amazement and exciting uh, time in the verse, the eunuch then says, but if that's water right there, why can't I go now and be baptized? And I love Philip's response because I love in this verse we see salvation tied in with the power of baptism. We see right there in that very moment, now I've shown you who Christ is. You've accepted and declared of him. And he says, now can I go and be cleansed in the baptizing waters? And that's what I think is most important about this scripture. And I'm going to spend the next potentially 45 minutes breaking down because I really believe that in the Western church, we've misunderstood and misrepresented the baptism. In this verse, it is a centerpiece to what happens to the eunuch. It is a centerpiece from him going from brokenness into fullness with Christ. And there's this eager excitement. I want to be baptized. I don't want to wait. I don't want to do a course. I don't want to wait till we have our biggest attendance and we'll do them all in one month. I want it right now. I want to go from not knowing this Jesus that I read about in this chariot to knowing him and now to being in him and with him. There's an urgency in the Ethiopian eunuch's heart. And I think we've lost that in the church because what we did was we took the baptism in water and we made it an outward expression of our faith and that's all we made it. Now it's a spectacle for those who come and watch. It wasn't a spectacle for anyone but the eunuch and God. The eunuch, he's in a position where he goes, I don't care who's here. I don't care who's watching God. Me and you, I want to deal with this thing right in the waters. Let's do this. And Philip says, let's go. There's some water. The word for baptize in the English language means this. Drench, dip, duck, douse, dunk, deluge, soak, sink, swamp, steep, saturate. Saturate, rather. Saturate, with a W. No, it's got an R. Saturate. It means to cover fully. It means to bring about a complete overcoming of whatever it is you are baptizing. Whatever it is that's been brought in is being brought fully into something. When the Bible was translated, there was, a, there was a group put together called the Bible Society when they translated it into English. And there were a list of rules that were given to the Bible Society when they brought it from, from the Greek and the Aramaic into the English or from the Latin as well into the English. And one of the rules that they brought in was that this word, baptize, was never allowed to be given its English representation. They all sat around a table and they said, how are we going to interpret the Bible? How are we going to change it into English? And that was a rule they came up with. And the reason that they came up with that rule was because if they change it into English, it challenged a lot of the doctrines around baptism. Because now, every time you read the word in the English language, it meant to submerge. 
So what tended to happen was we had denominations that were saying, I don't want to, I don't want to see the word translated into submerge because then I have to change my doctrine, my theology. I have to actually go from, well, now every time we read the word, it means water baptism, which it doesn't. I have to now start to rethink everything I've ever known. So we made a rule and now every time we see the word baptize, all of our brains go to water baptism. But the Hebrews and the Greek never saw it like that. They saw the word, he was John the submerger. He was John the plunger, the one who took people and he submerged them fully into the water. He wasn't John the baptizer, he's, he's the, the, the baptizer. It was, he was the plunger because he took people who hadn't been baptized fully in water, the Jews, and he's now baptizing them. He's bringing them fully under the water. And you see, the interesting thing that happens is Matthew 28, 19. We read that verse, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what we did was we took those words and we said they're the words that we have to use in baptism. So all around the world, people, as they go to baptize, they will take the person they're baptizing and they'll say, Phil, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and they baptize them. That's not what that verse is meaning. Because now if you remove the word baptism and change it to submerge, the verse says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, submerging them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go into the nations and submerge the people in the fullness of the Godhead. Carry with you the kingdom, my kingdom, and bring them fully into my kingdom. It's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about bringing them into the fullness of the Godhead. Why? Because there were nations that were worshipping primarily different gods and multiple gods. So when Jesus says, go, go in and submerge them in the fullness of me, in the fullness of the Father and in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, give them all of my kingdom. I got the privilege to baptize Jess after we had not long met and she hadn't been baptized. And Brad and I were just starting to discuss this. We were, we were talking baptism a lot through this. And, you know, I, I struggled with this because in my head I was like, no, no, if we don't say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is she really baptized? But as I begin to understand that she was baptized in the death of Christ and she rises again in the fullness of Christ, the language changes. So it's no longer in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's just you die with Christ. And you rise again with Christ. And I'm going to unpack that some more. But what I need us to understand is that every time you read the scriptures and you read the word baptism, stop and think. It means submerge. What is the verse saying? What is the verse trying to communicate to me that I'm going to be fully submerged into? I believe that there are five submersions, five baptisms in the Christian faith. I'm only going to address four this morning and I'm going to leave you hanging and I'm not going to tell you what the fifth one is. Why? Because the fifth one is incredibly challenging and I don't think I want to take us there yet because it's not in this verse. So I'm going to highlight four. I'm going to unpack four. And then the fifth one I will do at a later date. If you want to go on a journey to find the fifth one, I will give you a pointer as to where to start. But the first one that I think we see, the first baptism that a person comes into is the baptism of repentance. 
the full submergent in repentance. When we begin to understand what happens to a person when they start to understand the faith, the fullness of Christ, is that that Ethiopian eunuch, the first thing that happened in his life was he started to realize there's something about this scripture that I need to understand more of. There's something about my life that's not meeting up to what I always have meant to have been done. The Bible says that we that God knew us before he knitted us in our womb. That's everybody. That's not just believers. But there is a scroll from heaven written upon everybody's life. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our life that's not of him so that we may walk towards him. That's repentance. That's the beginning of repentance. That's where we get fully submerged in my life is not what I think God's created me to be. So I become in a place where my my heart and my soul begins to be emerged in the repentance of God. John the Submerger says this in Matthew 3 verse 11. In the ESV it says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But I want to show you how challenging different versions of the Bible can be. The ESV says, I baptize you with water for repentance. The King James says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. The Passion says, those who repent, I baptize with water. The NIV says, I baptize you with water for repentance. The AMP, the Amplified Version says, as for me, I baptize you with water because of your repentance. I think it's clear to see that the the translations of the Bible are a bit challenged on this verse. Because some of them are saying, well, now that I've baptized you, you can repent. Some are saying, well, because you've repented now, I can baptize you. There's there's an unusual understanding in the translations. I like to take the King James Version because it's what we get most of our our understanding from the Hebraic and Greek language. But the word there, so the, the King James says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. That word unto is, is similar to our word into. And in the English, it means I was not in something and now I step into it. Okay, so when I say I'm going into my home, I'm not in my home. Now I'm going into my home. Does that make sense? That's how we understand into in language. He wasn't in the pool. He jumped into the pool. But that's not how they saw it in the Greek. Because the into meant being brought right into something. I'm in something. I'm in the pool. But now I'm going into the depths of the pool. They understood it as I'm already in something, but now I'm going in deeper. I'm going into the depths. You see, when, the, when, when we take a, a, a Hebrew and a Greek language which paints such a phenomenal picture into a boring English language that, that says, yeah, nah, and, and, you know, servo and avo, we actually, we actually struggle to understand the picture that's being painted. You don't paint much of a picture with a servo and an avo. I cringe at, I love Australia. I I love it to pieces. But man, I cringe at our language sometimes. You hear something in French, it's so elegant and beautiful. And then I hear myself speak to another friend who's Aussie, and I'm like, oh, did I just say that? That's awful. But the language that we're reading into, the language that we're we're seeing it come from, is a, is a, a language that paints a picture. So now we see, uh, I'm not in it, but now I'm coming into it. So I love, I, I love the way the Amplified is taking this, because it says, As for me, John, I baptize you with water because of your repentance. 
You had begun in repentance. Repentance is stirring in your heart. God has brought you into it. And now in your baptism, I'm going to bring you into the fullness of the repentance of God. But it had already started to happen. That's why for me, when someone says, you know, what, what do you have to go through in order to be baptized? Your heart has to begin in repentance. You have to begin to say, my life as I knew it is not what God has for me. My life that I, I, I know what it is, is caught up in sin and wicked and awfulness and I want to change it because I've now seen him and I want to operate in who he is. That is the beginning of the baptism. It's the first submersion we go into is the baptism of repentance. Acts 3 verse 19, 20 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Repent and turn back. Then your sins can be forgiven. It's the beginning of our, our understanding and our walk into who, who Christ is, which brings me to the second submersion, the second baptism, which is the baptism into Christ. The baptism, our saving, full baptism into him the the bringing of life from death into life and we read from galatians 3 27 verse 29 and it says this for as many of you as were baptized submerged fully into christ have put on christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Romans 10, 8 verse 9 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess that somebody is Lord means that I'm no longer Lord. To confess that somebody is above me means that I don't have it all together. That's the repentance. But then we move into that and we say, God, because of who you are, Lord, Savior, I confess with my, with, I'm sorry, I believe in my heart that that is true and I confess with my mouth and he brings us into him. I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this verse. Because I'm going to sh- as I'm going to show you later, there's so much about baptism that talks about salvation. There's so much that says that once you're baptized, you're saved, that you, be- you get brought into, which I'm going to unpack. But as I was sitting last night on my couch, just wrestling with God while we were watching some awful movie and I had my laptop on my lap, I felt God say to me, you don't understand my salvation. So I googled salvation of God. I went right back to the beginning, stuff I'd learned a long time. And I realized something that I learned from Shane Willard a long time ago is that the Hebrews never understood, they never ever asked, how do we get to heaven, God? What is it? what, What do I have to do in order to get to heaven? Please, please, give me the give me the tools to get to heaven. They asked this: how do we see the kingdom now? How do we enter into the fullness of your kingdom now? It was never a journey to get to heaven for them. What we've made it in the Western world is we go, well, well, so you're saying that if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved? That was never the question. 
That was never the question. The question for the Jewish understanding was, God, how do I operate in the fullness of your power right now? How, how do I become saved in you, hidden in you, walk with you right now? And there's an element of things that take place. Do you need to be baptized in order to go to heaven? At the moment, no, I don't think that's the, that's the case. However, it doesn't matter because you need to have the power and the glory of God right now. And there is a few things that we have to do in our life to understand the full freeing flow of God through our life. And one of those things is water baptism, which I'll get to now. But the saving grace of God, the saving grace of Jesus Christ is confessed in our heart and expressed through our mouth. That brings us into the baptism of Christ. After we've already had the fullness, the submersion of repentance, my life, God, is not as I know it, is not what I thought it was, is not what you have for me. You have more for me. That's the baptism of repentance. Then we come to the next part, of the baptism of Christ, where we say, God, I want to be submerged fully into you. And we, we believe in our heart. We repent with our mouth. We are now saved and hidden in him. But there's so much more to the story because now there's a freeing and a releasing of power into his kingdom, into who he is. Just to wrap up the, the baptism of Christ, Romans 6, 3 to 7 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his because we know that our old self was crucified in him that order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The thing that happens in the baptism of Christ is this. We go from being orphans to being sons. We go from a broken family, having no family, into being brought into what? His body. So if I'm brought into his body, that makes all of us around brothers and sisters. We have to understand that at our salvation, we were brought into his holy church, his gathering of people. Not the Sunday morning come to our place, but the gathering of his people, we're brought into that. Brokenness comes off. Why? Because we're not lost, broken without the understanding of a father. We step into sonship with Christ. We step into the fullness of him. We get brought in, baptized, submerged fully in Christ. The next baptism, submersion in water, the one that we, we all know so well. And I was challenged while, while I've, been, I've been studying this for a while, Brad and I were talking quite a while back, probably a year or two ago, eh, Brad? That we started this conversation about like understanding this deeper. We've been walking through this and wrestling it and at times getting frustrated with each other. Like, no, that can't be the case. And I, I've spoken with other people where I toss things out and they're like, no, definitely not. And I'm like, can we just for a moment just play with it? Just see, maybe. Then we can squash it and take it off the table. But wrestling with this, and I came to this place that we actually don't understand the power of our baptism. For those of you who have been water baptized, I think we've missed it and I hope that I'm going to be able to paint a bigger picture. And for those of us that haven't been fully submerged, water baptized, I, I want to urge you, 
after this, that there is something powerful that takes place. But water in the Old Testament was used as a cleansing ritual. It was used as a cleansing ritual in many cultures, many religions across the ancient Hebraic world. There were many um, areas that would use cleansing before certain things. They would cleanse before they went into, became a new social status. They would cleanse themselves before they got married. They would cleanse themselves before changing roles at job. They would cleanse themselves all over. Why? Because it, it, it drew a picture of the death of the old and a cleansing and then a bringing into the new. I just thought this was interesting, so I tossed it in. Muslims, before they get married, they have a, a bachelor party. But the bachelor party is that all the, all the lads, all the, the friends take the, the, the buck and they give him a bath. Seems awkward. No, we won't be doing it. But it's interesting that water, water is seen across the board as a cleansing agent to move from the old into the, into the new. The other thing that's fascinating about this, which is I think is the, is the absolute goodness of God, is that when the high priest would go into the holy holies, the Holy of Holies, once a year, he would have to do two things to himself before he could enter. The first was that he would cleanse himself with water, fully submerge his body to clean before he entered the Holy of Holies. And the second was that he would be anointed with oil before he could step in. He was cleansed with water and he was anointed with oil. The first one I'm going to talk about, hold on to the anointing of oil because we'll get there. But the first one is the cleansing of water. But I want to just... I want to just tweak something. I want to just settle something, which I'm sure we are all in the same place, but I'm going to give us a scriptural foundation for it. John 3.23 says this, And John also was baptizing, submerging, in and anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and they were baptized. He chose the location of baptism because there was much water. Acts 8.38, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, down into the water to be baptized. When we baptize, the reason the word means submerge is because the blood of Christ doesn't get flicked over our body. The blood of Christ completely covers all that we are. So why would we take the beautiful picture, which is the blood of Christ dying for our sins, which paints a full covering, a total restoration, and then when we draw the picture of it in water baptism, we go, no, it's okay for us to sprinkle it on top of you. No, it's not. Why? Because it breaks down the very picture that Jesus came to paint. I once heard a story, a guy, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard it before, about open-hand issues and closed-hand issues. And, and guys who get into theological wrestles will say, is this an open-hand issue or a closed-hand issue? Should we, should we fight about this? We shouldn't fight about any verses. Why? Because God tells us not to. He tells us to operate in love. But for me, this is such a closed-handed issue. Why? Because it paints a picture of my salvation that I wasn't sprinkled and left with sin, that I was actually fully submerged and fully covered by the grace and power of God, that sin is completely ripped away and washed away, that nature is no longer. So we have to break that down. Yes, people will say, well, can't we have both? No, I don't believe we can. 
because it, it, it violates the very picture that Jesus painted on the cross. It takes away from the very thing that he did. I didn't come to, to make your sins better. I came to completely remove them and take them from one place to another. The putting on of Jesus, the covering and protection of him, it's the cleansing of our body, the bringing from the old into the new. Matthew 3, 13 verse 15 says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, and to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus goes to John, asks John, will you, will you baptize me? John, will you baptize me, Jesus? And John wants to prevent Jesus from being baptized to him. He says, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. I'm the one who, who should be baptized by you. And you come to me and ask. But Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. The righteousness inside of us that God brings us into full righteousness is fulfilled in the going under and the coming up of water baptism. Jesus says it right there. The fulfillment of your righteousness is done in the going under, the dying with me, and the coming up, the rising with me. In me, your righteousness is made on this earth and on the one to come. You are made whole in me. Jesus understood the need for water baptism. And sometimes I think we get, we get misconstrued on it. It wasn't a big scene that Jesus came down and was baptized. It turned into a big scene because as things started to happen, John, as he walks in, John declares, here he is, the lamb. And I've preached about what those two things meant. It was the, the samika, the power of God being given, his new yoke that was poured upon him. But Jesus is... is pouring out the significance of the baptism into full repentance. It is a sign of cleansing, but in the way of death and resurrection. It is the physical sign of death and resurrection we enter into Christ. And this makes the waters of baptism a delivering place for us. When Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them to what place that he couldn't pass? The Jordan, not a rhetorical question, thank you. <laughs> he brought them to a place, a body of water, a body of water that spoke life for the, for the region. And Jesus parts the water. Moses puts his staff into the water and the waters become parted. And what happens to Israel? They walk through the water. But it doesn't stop there because as they walk through, there's a turning back and looking at the chariots of the men of Pharaoh who were chasing them to kill them and what happens to the chariots and the, and, and the men of Pharaoh. They are killed and crushed in the water. That is a picture of the sign of baptism in the water that Jesus had for a nation. That is a picture of the fullness of Israel coming out of slavery, out of pain, out of suffering, out of insignificance, out of not feeling good enough, fat, skinny, anything that you can put on there is a coming out of that through the waters of Christ, through the waters that he's given for us. And then in the closing of the water, all those things get removed from us. I understand deliverance ministry. It is a powerful ministry. However, if we can understand as Christians and hold on to this, we don't need to see generation after generation things cut off us because it was cut off in our water baptism. Yes, there's, t there's people who are holding on to those generational curses. But what we're going to do after this is I'm going to offer a time of, of, of prayer because if you've been baptized... 
you're cut off from those curses. If you've been baptized, the water has closed on those things and the chariots of the enemy have been destroyed. But we don't live in it because we don't realize the power of our baptism. When, when Louis was baptized, he came out of the water and there was this phenomenal... I'd never experienced it quite like that with, with when we prayed for Louis. He was, he was shaking and, and he was overcome and he couldn't say anything. And he dropped to his knees in the sand and there was this power of God that was on him where I believe there was things being flushed and taken out. Because it was the closing of the waters that removed the enemy from his life. Does that mean that he can't ever ever walk back into that evilness, walk back into that? No, those things can come back and, and take, but we get the freedom and the foundations to stand on Christ that those things never come back. But there's a disconnection right there from our past and God says, here's your future, let me walk you into it. The waters of baptism are removing from our old man into our new man. It says in the Scriptures, I can't quite remember where it says it. But it says that we are a new creation in him. That the old has gone, behold, all new things. And there is a new life being given to us. The, 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 the baptism waters is the sign of that new life. It's the beginning of that new life. So when Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch and there's this excitement, there's this joy, I'm sure that Philip explained when you go into that water, you go in an Ethiopian eunuch, but when you come out of that water, you come out a son and heir of Christ. You come out in him understanding who he is and the fullness of who he is. Your baptism is not the end of your walk with Christ, but the beginning. Salvation in God is not the end of our story. Yes, I've made it, I'm going to heaven. That's the end, I write it out. It's the beginning of the exploits that God has for us. It's the start of our journey, not the end. That's the baptism in water. Baptism in repentance, baptism into Christ, baptism into water, which leaves us with the fourth one, the baptism into fire or the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 5 and 8 says this, Jesus speaking, he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the believer receiving the power of God. The problem with a large portion of the church today is that they haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, which means they lack the operation in the power and fullness of God. That's brutal and hard and harsh to say, and, and people struggle with that. But that's what Jesus said. He said that this is my spirit of which the power will be given unto you. Go and wait. Don't do anything until the spirit comes. You see, we have a phenomenal position that we sit in. Why? Because we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is in us. Moses didn't have that. Moses had to wait and hope that God was going to show up, hope that the Spirit was going to come upon him. Yet we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become the very resting place of God in us, through us. 
And I've preached this before, but there's a power on and there's a power in. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the power of God, the Holy Spirit in us, operating through us. When we get hands laid on, there's a power that's given, there's a pouring out. Acts 8 verse 14 says this, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized, submerged in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There is two givings of God. One, the baptism into Christ. But then John says, that's not enough because there's a power that Jesus came to give us, which is the Holy Spirit. People will argue that we don't need a, we don't need a baptism in the Holy Spirit because Jesus has already done all that for us. Right there in that verse in Acts, they say there's something else. There's something else. When Philip gets to Samaria, he, the, the, the people, he starts to pray for them. The people are hungry. They're crying out for more. God, we want something else. There's something more that we're missing. There's a piece in this puzzle that we don't quite have. And John comes. He says, I know what it is. It's the Holy Spirit. Let me lay hands on you and let him pour out on this place. Can I tell you one of the most, the most difficult things as a church leader when preaching about the Holy Spirit, is I have no idea how God can move through that. That In a moment, I'm going to ask guys to come forward if they want prayer. I've asked some guys to come and pray for us. And, and I'm, I, even in, in, in our home right here, I'm nervous. Why? Because God will move however God wants to move. And the problem with that is that as a church leader, I don't get to control that. But it doesn't matter how many times you go to your knees and say, God, come, come and do whatever you want to do. That's scary language. Why? Because things start to happen and God starts to move. And we start to see what they saw in the book of Acts. We start to see an outpouring of God and people start going, nope, that's uncomfortable. I know of a church recently, a big movement, and they said, look, we, we, we have decided that we're no longer sensationists, that we no longer believe that the gifts, the gifts ceased. We believe that the gifts operate now. However, we do not encourage them to move in the house. We know they're there, but we don't encourage prophecy. We don't, we, we don't talk about the, uh, the apostle because we don't quite know what that one is, but we don't encourage prophecy in the house. We don't encourage, encourage people laying hands and asking God to move like that. Why? Because it scares the crap out of us. And our churches are full at the moment. And if God starts to move and people start to get upset, we might lose people. But you see, everything Jesus put together in this book of Acts, everything he did, he hinged it on the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts is written because of what happens at Pentecost. Acts is written because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because of the fire that ravaged through the people, because of a hunger that a people said, God, give us more. Give us more. We, 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 are so, we are so amazed that we've been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. But God, give us more. In Matthew 3.11, John foretells of someone who was coming to baptize with power. An author named Henry T. Henry T. Blackberry said this, If we function according to our ability alone, 
we get, we get the glory. But if we function according to the power of the Spirit within us, God gets the glory. If we function in our ability alone, we get the glory. But if we function by the power of the Spirit within us, He gets the glory every time. Why? Because He does stuff that I could never do. I'm often amazed by conversations that I have and I walk away going, what was that? What did I even say? Sometimes a boldness that I didn't even know. Jess and I were at dinner the other night with a, uh, another church leader, um, two other church leaders that lead a church here in the city, and they said something, and this boldness roared out of me about this thing that they said. And I, they left, and I said to Jess, was I hurtful in that? And she said, no, but you didn't muck around. You said what you said. I, yeah, I said, yeah, but by the time it was coming out, I couldn't grab it back. There was this boldness that spewed out of my mouth because I was upset by, by the disjustice they were explaining that I believed was going to happen in something they were going to do. And it was going to hurt them. And I realized that night, man, that was the Holy Spirit that poured that out. There's no way I would have had the boldness to say that to them, to their face, without any hesitation. God will move through us when we allow him. I'm going to end the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit with this. In Joshua 3, Joshua takes Israel back through the Jordan, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a moment in Joshua 3 where he goes to the water and God says, put your feet, get the, get the Levitical teachers that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant to stand in the water and the water will open up. And it says that the water heaps all the way back to a town called Adam. And the water that's running from that town called Adam ends up in a place called the Dead Sea where the water could not be consumed because it would lead to death and brokenness. The Ark of the Covenant gets carried into the water. They're carrying it. And as they stand in the, in the midst of the water, the water rushes all the way back up to Adam. That's a prophetic picture that Jesus was going to break into our brokenness. He was going to break into the generational curse that came from Adam and he was going to rewind the clock all the way back up to Adam and give us life through his power and through his spirit. It was a picture of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit right back when Israel was freed from Egypt and brought in to the promised land. Jesus said, uh, sorry, the Lord said to them, this I will do for you. It was a picture that painted and broke down the very curse that Adam gave us in the garden. And Jesus wound the clock all the way back. And he said, in me and in the power of God who will be poured upon you by the Holy Spirit, you will see freedom and fullness of life in this place. The Old Testament points to the fullness of God, points to the very submersion of these four elements, that we repent, that we get brought into the fullness of God, that we be baptized into his death and his resurrection, and that there be an outpouring of power on the people to see his kingdom come and be brought into the city, into the nation and into the nations. Timmy, do you just want to... Um Pray for us. We're gonna. I'm just gonna finish with this, and then I want to offer some time for ministry. John three three verse eight says this: Nicodemus is is discussing with Jesus, a Pharisee, and he's discussing with Jesus about something that Jesus has said, and he says he says, "Well, how 
Jesus said to him, you need to, be, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says to him, well, how am I supposed to be born? Do I go back into my mother's womb and then come out again? And Jesus answers him and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To which is born of the, to which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it was with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in person, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, who were brought to safety through water. Noah is a picture of the baptisms back into God. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, as a remove, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. God has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. God came to pour out all of who he is and to bring us into the fullness of who he is. As I said in the beginning, the ancient Hebraic understanding was not what was going to get me to heaven. It was God, how do I understand the fullness of your power and your glory and your kingdom right now? The wrestle we always have is, God, do, do I have to be baptized to be saved? No, but when Jesus explains the importance of it, why would you not want to be? When Jesus explains the power and the, the incredible significance in the spiritual realm of your body going under the waters of death and rising again, why would you not want to be? Or do I have to, do I have to be, be baptized in the fire and spirit of God in order to go to heaven? No, but again, if there's so much importance on it, why wouldn't you want to be? Why wouldn't you want to be? Why wouldn't you want those that you trust and believe to lay hands on you to say, God, let your Holy Spirit come and fill this person? beginning and the move of our salvation the Bible doesn't speak as salvation as one fluid thing that it's done and that it's finished you're going to get me to open a whole can of worms there there are elements within our salvation that takes place and as we move through that there is a, there is a, a changing and a renewing that takes place there is a coming into and a falling of power onto these are elements of the salvation but the, the the key thing is that we're not asking the question how do we get to heaven because if you've confessed with your with your mouth and believed in your heart heaven is finished done you're sorted it's it, it's it's okay 
Stop asking that. But now let's ask a bigger question. How do I operate in the fullness of you right now? How do I step into more and more and more and more of you? So this is what I want to do. If you've never stepped into that, the, the, the second, the first and the second understanding, a baptism of repentance and a baptism into Christ, in a moment, I want you to come to the front. Jess and, and, and Dan and whoever else wants to pray will be up the front here to pray. Take that declaration, that stand now, God, I've, my, my, my time has been leading in repentance up to this and I feel that now I can I believe so strongly in my heart that I want to confess with my mouth and make you my Lord and my Saviour. The other thing is that if you haven't been baptised in the Holy Spirit, you haven't had somebody lay hands on you, and look, the laying of hands is not, a, is not an issue. If God wants to baptize you and you are crying out, He will do that. That's how Brad was baptized in the Holy Spirit. In his room, on his own, cried out, God, come and move on me. He was hungry and God came. But there is an indication in the Scriptures that there's a laying on of hands as well. So if you want to come, be bold and come and let somebody pray for you. Why does it have to be at the front? Because it makes it easier to distinguish those who do want prayer and don't want prayer. It's the only reason for coming to the front. Tim's going to lead us a bit more in worship. But also, if there's something in your life that you feel is a generational, something that goes back and back and back to something that, that, that you feel has been in a family line, I want you to come forward as well. Why? Because the baptism of water, if you have been baptized in water, that thing is broken and is no longer. And we want to pray for you to step in to that understanding. And if you have not been water baptized and you've given your heart to God, you've given yourself fully to Him, you've come into that repentance, you've come into the fullness of Him, please come and see me. If possible, we will go right after this service and we will baptize you. If you need to go home and breathe and put swimmers on and we can do it next week. But we do not need a fancy 10-week lead up to it. We will go right now and whoever will come will come. So why don't you stand? Dan, can you just come? Jess, can you just come stand in front? Just before we, before I, I ask you to close your eyes and, and come forward, if if that's what you want to do, and we're, we're just going to go back into worship. I don't need anybody to come forward in order for me to feel good. So if no one comes forward, that's okay. We'll worship. We'll close the service. We'll go drink coffee. It's not about me feeling spectacular. But please, please, please don't leave here carrying something you don't need to carry. And please don't leave here without having decided, if, if, if I want this, I want to go right now. I don't need you to come forward, but also, please, if people come forward, I don't know how God's going to move. And I will not restrict God in this house. So if things start to happen that can't be explained, please close your eyes and pray and ask God, God, what are you doing in this place? So why don't you just close your eyes. If you're one of those people, why don't you come forward right now? 
you've not given your life to God, if you've not confessed that He's Lord and Savior and ruler of your life, if you've not been baptized in, in the fire and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, or if you carry something generationally in your life that you know needs to leave once you come forward right now.